This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Welcome to the Casting Across Fly Fishing Podcast. I'm Matthew of castingacross.com, where I explore the quarry and culture of fly fishing. It's about 20 years ago that I was involved in my first conservation project, my first stream improvement project. And the place that we were working was targeted because it was a spring creek and because of mismanagement upstream for a number of reasons and just because of use, lots of use, agricultural use, and even some angling use, there was a stretch that had gotten very wide. Primarily erosion was the, was the issue, but because it got wider, uh, there was siltation, and there was a reduced flow rate, and there was uh, an impact from uh, some thermal issues. The, the water got shallower, so the sun was able to heat up that stretch more. The riparian vegetation that was on the one stream side that had been eroded away went from being larger plants and even trees to basically being grass. And so there was no shade and no cover. And so consequently, the sum total of all those problems was that it wasn't a great habitat. And there was uh, too much silt for trout to spawn. It also inhibited uh, aquatic macroinvertebrates from really living in, in that stretch of water. Not a lot of plant growth, just kind of muddy and silty and shallow and hot. And just a, it was a really, really productive stretch upstream and downstream. So this was a perfect spot for a project. So this project entailed bringing some very large rocks down, shoring up the bank with these rocks, uh, putting some rebar in to hold the rocks in place, and then rolling a 14 or 16 foot cut stretch of telephone pole down from the road to that spot and inserting it on top of that rebar. So uh, basically, if you were walking to the water, it, the, the progress would be um, backfilled with, with small rocks, large rocks that are creating the new stream bank 
and then um, holding those rocks in place is rebar with with a telephone pole that has holes drilled into it uh, sitting on top of that rebar. Then you backfill from, from there back towards the road. So what that did was that added about five feet of, um, of new shoreline, of new bank that was deeper. It wasn't the water tapering up on that, that side. It was now like a two and a half foot um, drop off from the top of the new stream bank down to, to the, the bottom of the, the creek. It was amazing. I returned to the project in about maybe six weeks, and that water was flowing very, very quickly along that uh, new log, and uh, it had gotten much, much deeper. Um, the, the gravel and the substrate had been exposed, and the most exciting thing was that as I stood there and stomped around and, and looked at the, the, the log and the rocks and the trying to avoid the, uh, the freshly planted grass and the things that were growing on the fill, uh, an 18-inch brown trout came out from underneath that new project and that undercut bank. We could talk a lot about conservation projects. We could talk a lot about this particular conservation project and how it's done a lot actually in the 20 years since it was installed. Uh, but I want to touch on that one last facet of what I mentioned. That is an undercut bank. How they are so valuable to anglers, um, how they get there, not often because of telephone poles, and how you can fish them. So what is an undercut bank? It's exactly what I just described. It is where the bank of a creek or a stream or a river, whatever you want to say, a flowing body of water, and actually could even apply an undercut bank to a still water um, because of various circumstances, just a little bit of a different different situation of how they're formed. Um, but oftentimes, when you think of them, they're on the outside bend of a river. Well, why is that? The water's flowing downstream, it, and a, say the river dog legs right, where is that water going to uh, most strongly uh, impact the bank? It's on that outside curve. Now, there's a multitude of variables. Everything that happens upstream impacts what happens downstream. And so although that undercut bank on the outside bank is the most common, it certainly can occur on that inside bank as well. Inevitably, you've seen that where there's a deep hole on an inside bend and it actually moves up and underneath that, uh, that, that stream bank. So again, erosion is the major reason for undercut banks happening. And based upon the soil and plant and rock composition of the stream bank, it's going to happen in different ways in different places. And actually, uh, you have trees and rocks and various weather events that will create um, undercut banks. Uh, for example, uh, a large tree that is very close to the stream tips over. Now what happens? You have this giant root ball that gets pulled up, and if it doesn't fall over completely, it has now created this really large mass of tangled roots and soil and things like that that were once in level with the, the stream, and now they are elevated out, outside of it. So there is this divot and there is this kind of cup and pocket and cave that the stream flows under and through. So it is not the most traditional undercut bank, but for our purposes, it's incredibly valuable because it provides the same sorts of things that fish are looking for. So we'll get to that in a second, but you can identify these pretty simply. First of all, it, there may be separation between the top of the water and the bottom of the undercut bank. 
that's that's the easiest way to identify it where you actually see that there's like six inches to a foot to even maybe more that it where the water extends underneath the stream bank but in times when that's not the case where they're running flush whether because of high water or just the nature of that stream you can identify an undercut bank with a few key features one if the water is deep and it is up against the bank there's a very good chance that that much water creating that much depth is going to erode into the bank so it might only be a few inches but it is probably there uh, additionally if you have that depth perception where you can see things that you know are not directly uh, parallel with the stream bank but are beyond it then obviously you're talking about an undercut bank but you can also tell by the flow if your fly is getting pushed into the bank um, especially if it's that outside bank then that means that water wants to go into the bank and maybe even under the bank so you can always reach you can always mess around and I encourage you to do that I mean you might spook a couple of fish but it's always good to kind of realize wow that actually goes back there really far now given it's a little bit unnerving to stick your arm underneath a, a, a dark root ball and see how far it goes especially if they're like snapping turtles and things like that around but it's good to kind of gauge those uh, spots so that you know what you're up against when you come back and fish the next time so anyway why do fish like these well simplest reason is it's cover when a fish is in the middle of a stream it has cover on one side below and that's only if it's the bottom of, of, of a stream I mean a smaller fish in theory in a, in a bigger body of water has zero cover it's being uh, vulnerable on all sides but in a normal circumstance a fish has cover beneath it now if a fish is up against a stream bank it has cover beneath it and to one side you see where I'm going here <laughs> when you have an undercut bank that fish is getting some protection and it has a sense of safety uh, whatever that means for a fish uh, above to one side and below it so this is the primary reason uh, a fish that can't find cover under a rock under you know a rock that provides a little bit of a, a crevice in the middle of a stream so a smaller fish a juvenile trout it can now find that same sort of security up against an undercut bank and a lot of times that's what we think about a bigger fish that has found a place where it can just completely veg out and chill is in an undercut bank so that's the first reason it's cover secondly is there is a diversity of habitats um, and and that leads to a diversity of forage so it is not always the case it's, it's probably least likely is it the case where that's just a a undercut bank is just a dead pocket of water the reason it's there is because there is a current that's moving through it so food is going to be going there so you have the cover but then you also have that line of food and what are fish looking for safety and food and so that this provides it in in superfluous ways because there's more cover than being anywhere else in the water and there's more food because the the current that would create this pocket also brings forth a lot of food but there's not just the food that's coming um, from from upstream you can have actually fish feeding on spiders on worms on all sorts of stuff that are going to be living up and underneath if there is some some separation between the water and the bottom of the the bank um, I watched a fish uh, jump and take food out of a spider web multiple times in an undercut bank 
um, on a creek in, in kind of the, the middle of the Pennsylvania woods. It, it was amazing. It was one of those things where I saw the spider web glistening and it caught my eye before. And so the first time the fish jumped, I thought, what in the world is that thing doing? And then it did it two more times. And each time it was either taking spiders, but probably more likely uh, just some sort of bug that it saw flailing around above it. And uh, it saw an easy meal and it took it. So there's more diversity uh, if the food choices in the undercut bank. And that's because, again, it's not just some hollow pocket. There's roots and there are all sorts of things that are going to be underneath there. So a undercut bank might actually provide a secondary level of cover. And, you know, how often do you want to cast into a root ball? You know there's a fish in there, but how are you going to get the thing out? And how are you going to get your fly out after one drift? You might have one drift and then your fly is totally stuck. But those are the kind of environments that fish can retreat into and you're going to find smart fish, wild fish, big fish that are back into these spots. And then kind of along those same lines is that you will you will get an eddy or you will get um, interesting little uh, current formations in undercut banks because there's a lot that that water is doing. So you have water moving at a pretty good clip in order to create that undercut bank, but then it is running up against in that process of erosion. I mean, erosion is, is a constant evolving uh, process uh, and that water is running up against a surface and it's creating all sorts of different currents. So what this does is, again, it brings the food, it creates the undercut bank, but there are chances that that fish is going to have places where it can sit in a relatively fast current, adjacent to a relatively fast current and not have to expend a whole lot of energy. So you get what I'm saying? That fish has access to that cover. The fish has access to that food, but because maybe it is sitting right behind a root or it is sitting in a little pocket or an eddy because there is a big rock that hasn't been eroded away at the same pace as the surrounding soil, it can hang out without swimming hard and just dart in and out and get the food that it needs and maintain that same cover. So they're really great little ecosystems and they're they're really cool and like i said you'll find smart fish wild fish and big fish in undercut banks all right so these are all good things to know good things to kind of keep in mind as you approach these spots but how do you fish them i think that's probably the most important thing so i'm not going to provide an exhaustive uh take on how to fish undercut banks what i am going to do is provide my preferred approach for each major fly pattern category streamers dries slash terrestrials and nymphs so streamers dries terrestrials and nymphs there's lots of things you can do uh, but i'm just gonna give one of each and maybe we'll do a second installment of undercut banks undercut banks part two coming to a podcast near you so uh, streamers my favorite way to fish undercut banks by far is to get upstream from them and so let's imagine that I'm standing upstream of an undercut bank. It is on my left, so current is moving down away from me, and there's undercut bank on the left. I will cast to the right, kind of quartering away from the undercut bank. So maybe if I'm facing perfectly downstream and the undercut bank is on my left, then I'll maybe cast at 2 o'clock, and I will allow that fly to swing under the bank. I'll take my rod tip, and I'll get it as close to that bank as I can without rubbing up against the water or the uh, grass or the dirt or whatever. And then I will do a jerking retrieve with my rod tip low so that fly is as close to the undercut bank as possible. Now, based upon the currents and where you're positioned and the weight of your fly and so many other variables, if you can get that thing to go up and underneath, then that is 
ideal because what you're wanting to do is take a fish that has found himself made in the literal shade to attack a fly. So you want to make this as easy as possible. Are there fish that are going to come out, you know, 10 feet from an undercut bank and nail a fly? Yes, that happens. We see those videos. I've had it happen to me. It's exhilarating. But you want to make it as easy as possible. And uh, so what you're going to do is you're going to continue to kind of jig that fly forward. I am so tempted to use my rod tip when I do this, but it is much, much more preferable to use your line hand and to strip that in and maintain tension with your rod, with your rod hand and then use your rod tip for kind of those micro movements and to kind of sweep up slack. So there, there's a lot that goes into that, but basically you're stripping with your line hand and you are maintaining line tension with your rod hand and you are also sweeping up they're, they're the slack that's created. You're not going to completely eliminate slack, but that's good because that allows for that fly to kind of bob and weave in the water and make give it that wounded and or lifelike motion. And so what I will do then too is if I, especially if I have visual, you know, uh, uh, connection to that fly, I'll let it stop and dead drift backwards and tumble. And man, there's, there's nothing like a woolly bugger or a, a big chunky streamer like that tumbling head over heels. Um, because I mean, that's, that's what a dying fish looks like. They don't, they don't swim downstream when they're dying. They, they tumble. And then I just strip it back up and do that over and over again. And what I will do is I will work downstream and just maintain that same distance rod tip up close to the bank and casting cording away. And then casting, letting it swing, pulling it upstream, and just work my way along uh, a bank. And there's sometimes where these undercut banks can be for, I mean, very, very long stretches, um, especially if the uh, the growth on the stream side, the riparian growth is big trees. Uh, you're going to have a very, very secure uh, stream bank, but that erosion is going to cut underneath those things. And so you might have um, just, you know, 100 yards of, of an undercut bank. And there's one particular uh, freestone stream in Pennsylvania where the entire, I mean, far bank, because you would access it from, from the close side, um, the, the far bank, the entire thing, the entire catch and release stretch was undercut. And so you'll, you'll have opportunities like that. So that's my favorite streamer approach on undercut banks. My favorite dry fly, and I'll add terrestrials in with this, is just to get as close as possible because what you're doing with this is you're basically playing a fly that fell in the water as dumb as that sounds that's what happened it was walking along and when it falls in it's going to fall straight down now can it fall a few inches off absolutely but you're going to think fly right next to that bank now this can be challenging if the grass is high or if the grass extends all the way down to the water but get it as close as you can. Now, sometimes this necessitates a downstream drift, not the preferred way to fish a dry fly, but if there is overhanging grasses, then this is one of those things that you will fish a dry fly downstream so you can get it to weave through those uh, that tunnel of overhanging grass. And in the summertime, there's a lot of creeks where that grass will get long and it'll extend over the bank and onto the water, but it does create that little tunnel where you can drift a dry fly or a hopper or something like that. And 
to be able to get it to kind of weave through there and then swing it out to the middle of the stream before you retrieve it to cast again uh, and presents that fly to to those fish because you want it as close as possible now if you are fishing a situation under cut bank and there is some distance if you can cast especially and this is where terrestrials come in handy and you can skip that thing because the, a splash for a, a, an ant or a beetle or a hopper or a cricket is totally fine they splash when they hit the water. Well, small ants don't, but the other, the other ones do. If you can skip that thing, and you should practice skipping flies. That's that's a, another podcast on casting and presentation technique. But if you can skip that fly, even so it is just underneath that bank, if there is some separation between the bottom of the undercut bank and the top of the water, then that is a fantastic way to present a fly to, to those fish. Again, if they are being wary if they are being, you know, if they're nocturnal, if they're a larger fish that's chosen to move into a nocturnal feeding pattern, uh, it, it is going to take a lot to coax it out. But if you can put that thing where all it has to do is rise up a few inches in the water column to take it off the surface, then you are golden. So work on skipping flies because skipping flies underneath cover, whether it be tree branches or an undercut bank, is an incredibly valuable tool or bridges or culverts or all those things. You know, learn how to skip a dry fly. Learn how to skip a streamer. Learn how to skip your flies. Um, it's a it's an undersung technique. All right, streamers, downstream cast and upstream retrieve, uh, dry flies. Uh, try to get them as close to or underneath that bank as possible. And lastly, nymphs. Now, honestly, I don't have some big nymph tactic for fishing undercut banks. But what I will say is that you have to remember that that fly is going to be much closer than you expect to you. So that is to say, if you make a beautiful cast and you drop that little hair's ear nymph right against the bank, as it sinks, unless you have put a ton of extra tippet or a line uh, in that cast where it piles up right where that fly goes in, that thing is going to get pulled towards you by a couple of feet at least. Consequently, I'm not a huge fan of approaching undercut banks by standing um, perpendicular to the spot that I want to fish to. What I find to be much more preferable is getting very far downstream of kind of the spots that I want to target and casting not perfectly upstream. So my, my right shoulder, if the if I'm fishing the, the um, river right, my right shoulder is not on, on the stream bank. But, you know, I'm, I'm a, maybe a rod distance between myself and the stream bank and I'm casting straight upstream and allowing that fly to get to depth, and if I need to use my rod tip to kind of move it in line with that stream bank, now I can cast well beyond that spot that I want to fish, and then allow my my nymph or my nymph rig, whether it be weighted or with an indicator or whatever it's going to be, allow that thing to get to depth. Then what do you have to do? Then line control becomes a very very important thing. But you can do that. You can see how fast your your line is moving, and if you're using an indicator, you know you don't have to be Johnny on the spot. If you're fishing with tension, this is a very very difficult thing to do. This isn't a tight lining tactic. If you do want a tight line nymph, then I will say, and I guess this is me breaking my rule and doing two different tactics. Um, then then you just fish a very very heavy fly, and you bank on that thing going down relatively straight. It's never gonna go down relatively straight. It's always gonna come back to you. But uh, that, that's just 
the way that you have to handle that tactic. I'm sure there's other things out there, but in my experience, that's what you do if you want a tight line nymph up against undercut bank. You just got to get as close as you po as you possibly can, but that's kind of the name of the game anyway. So, but my preference is casting upstream and then either using an indicator or multiple flies and maintaining good tension on that line and using your uh, end of your line or some sort of uh, indicator uh, cider as as your your cue for what's happening uh, upstream of you. All right, that's a lot. That's just like a ton of information. But uh, those are my three of your favorite tactics for fishing undercut banks, or at least one for each of the, the major fly categories. Uh, this was on my mind because one of my favorite streams in the area, uh, a couple of trees fell over this winter, and they've totally changed the makeup of the stream and now I have new undercut banks to explore. I mean this is a very small stream. I'm I'm looking at my office. You, you can't see my office, but the stream is narrower than my office in most places. And there's a couple of holes that have only been there for about three months because I haven't been on, on that water while the season's closed, which has been September until now. But even in that time, these things are like like waist deep, which is which is pretty impressive. So I'm excited about the fish that are going to move into them. So again uh, become familiar with where the undercut banks are. A lot of times they're very apparent and evident, and sometimes it requires you staying close to the banks and realizing, wow, this is a lot uh, deeper and, and it uh, extends further than I, I thought. And then, you know, realize that fish are going to be there, bigger, smarter, and uh, wild fish are going to like these spots. And then toy around with some of my suggestions of how to fish them, and then inevitably pick up a fly fishing book. There's a lot of other tactics out there that are worth exploring, but you need to be targeting these spots. The deep holes are great. The uh, foam lines are awesome. Uh, the plunge pools are perfect. But uh, undercut banks, never, never overlook them. This week on castingacross.com, I had a video. So if you hear my voice and you want to see my face, that's not, not a lot to write home about. But if you want to watch a video on a few products that I like for fly storage when my flies are not in my fly box, then you want to check this video out. Three small businesses, six great little products. It's six minutes long. Links to those products are on the website, but definitely check out Video Flies Unboxed. And then Wednesday was my monthly contribution to the website Trout and Feather. And this is a, a good article, uh, kind of staying with that theme of flies, nice little winter topic as we're all organizing and reorganizing. I go through why you shouldn't, shouldn't use certain types of fly boxes. I had a podcast on that a while ago, but this is very concise. I mean, 700 words, seven different fly boxes, um, why you should use some for some flies and others for, for others. And then on the article, I also have two really good videos from Tim from Trout and Feather. If you are a tire or want to become a tire, uh, there's some really good information, especially one on how to keep your hook eyes clean, which, I mean, we all need to keep our hook eyes clean. Am I right? This week's recommendation on the podcast is a video from the good people at Loon Outdoors. They partnered with Chuck Reagan, and they wrote, have a little video called Tools of the Trade, The Songwriter and the Guide. And it's just a fun little video. Uh, cool shots, good music. Uh, if you haven't heard of Chuck Reagan before, you definitely need to check him out. Great music, and he's a fly fishing guide. So it's just a, a cool synthesis of two different things. And a lot of us do that. We combine uh, what we do with fly fishing, and uh, his, his story is great. And it is a commercial for Loon products, but you know what? I like Loon products, so it doesn't bother me at all, and it's not preachy, and uh, it's not a bunch of product placement, unless you consider a hat that. Uh, just it's a, it's a good video, and there's going to be a couple more forthcoming, so definitely check that out. There's a link to that video on the show notes of this podcast page on castingacross.com. 
Thanks for listening to the Casting Across Fly Fishing Podcast. Please subscribe in your favorite podcast app and rate the podcast on iTunes. Then head over to castingacross.com where you'll find more info on this podcast and three posts a week on the people, places, and things that go into the pursuit of fish. Mm-hmm.